At one minute before one o'clock this morning, the switchboard at the Capitol received a phone call. A man's voice said a bomb would go off in the building in half an hour. At 1.30 in the morning, it did. In a small, unmarked restroom on the ground floor of the Senate side, next to a barber shop and near several small offices, including one committee hearing room. For a report on the first serious damage to the nation's foremost structure since the British burned it in 1814, here is ABC congressional correspondent Bob Clark. That was Howard K. Smith, co-anchor of the ABC Evening News on March 2, 1971, reporting on an explosion on the Senate side of the United States Capitol building the previous evening. But by then, as the Nixon administration continued to pound North Vietnam with bombs on a daily basis, explosions on the home front had become a signature act of a radical domestic movement committed to fighting imperialism and police violence against black Americans by any means necessary. The group that claimed credit was the Weather Underground, young white radicals who had split off from Students for a Democratic Society in June 1969. That October 6th, activists dynamited the Haymarket Police Memorial in Chicago, a statue commemorating officers killed by an anarchist bomb during a labor rally on May 4, 1886. The explosion was part of the Days of Rage, violent street demonstrations which attempted, according to activist Bill Ayers, to break from the norms of what the group had come to think of as civil anti-war protest. As Ayers reflected in a documentary, we wanted to say no, what we're going to do is whatever we had to do to stop the violence in Vietnam. Nearly everyone in the organization was arrested during the Days of Rage, and instead of facing charges that could derail the movement, the group went underground, assuming false identities, assembling in cells, and intensifying their militant culture. Days and nights were spent training to fight, learning to make bombs, and undergoing a Maoist group ritual called criticism self-criticism to purge themselves of any softness or ideological flaws that might make them less effective revolutionaries. A cell that relocated to the Northeast set off Molotov cocktails around New York City. Among the targets were Columbia University, a police station in the West Village, and a judge's home. But on March 6, 1970, as activists Diana Outen, Ted Gold, Terry Robbins, Kathy Wilkerson, and Kathy Boudin were building bombs in a townhouse on West 11th Street, there was a massive explosion. Only Wilkerson and Boudin escaped. The death of their friends shook the group to its foundations. When it assembled to plan the future, they vowed to bomb only buildings, not people. On May 21, 1970, the group issued a declaration of war on the United States government, taped by Bernadine Dorn, in response to the murder of Black Panther leader Fred Hampton by Chicago police. Sisters and brothers, a year ago we blew away the Haymarket pig statue at the start of the youth riot in Chicago. The head of the police sergeants association called emotionally for all-out war between the pigs and us. We accepted. Last night we destroyed the pig again. This time it begins a fall offensive of youth resistance that will spread from Santa Barbara to Boston back to Kenton, Kansas. Now we are everywhere, and next week families and tribes will attack the enemy around the country. We are not just attacking targets, we are bringing a pitiful, helpless giant to its knees. The federal charges mounted, including some related to breaking psychedelic guru Timothy Leary out of prison, where he was held on drug charges. 
But as the Vietnam War wound down, whether people began to look to the future, they had children, came up from underground, negotiated their freedom with the authorities, and imagined other ways to fight for social justice. Bernadine Dorn, a graduate of the University of Chicago Law School, won her law license. Bill Ayers became a professor of education. One of their sons is Zaid Ayers Dorn, a writer and professor at Northwestern University's School of Communication. And in the depths of the pandemic, he wanted to save the stories of his parents and their comrades. But he also had questions, lots of questions, about what happened and why. That became the basis of Mother Country Radicals, a family history of the weather underground. And that's what we're talking about today. You're listening to Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is episode four, Bringing the War Home. Zaid Ayers Dorn, welcome to Why Now. Thanks, Claire. Happy to be here. So I really enjoyed your podcast, Mother Country Radicals. And I want to start by just allowing you to tell our listeners, what's the podcast about and what story does it tell? Yeah, so the podcast is kind of a personal and a political memoir. It tells the story of my family. I was born, I mean, I have one of the weirder childhood stories probably out there. I was born underground when my parents were uh, fugitives. My mom was on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. And we were on the run from the FBI because of their activist work in the 60s and 70s as founders and leaders of the Weather Underground organization. So the podcast tells the story of kind of a group of young white radicals um, joining up with the Black Panthers and later the Black Liberation Army and trying to fight the government. But it also tells the story of, you know, my childhood and my family and what it was like to grow up the son of revolutionaries and kind of grappling with that legacy. Yeah. And that meant really asking your parents to get into some stuff they hadn't talked to you about before. Yeah, it did. It did. And, you know, it's funny. I've been a writer for uh, over a decade now and never never really wanted to tell this story. And I don't know whether my parents wanted to tell it or not. Uh, you know, my dad has written a memoir. They've they've been public figures for a long time, but this is a more intimate version of that story. And I wasn't sure that any of us, frankly, wanted to get into it. But, you know, it, I started thinking about it during the pandemic. Uh, my parents were getting older. My mom was about to turn 80. Um, other people who are kind of in my I guess you could call it extended radical family, were getting sick. My, my sort of adopted mom, Kathy Boudin, had cancer. So I was thinking a lot about, you know, and, and we were all isolated from each other during the pandemic. So I was thinking this might be my last chance to ask some questions that I had. And, um, and they were generous enough to, to really be honest with me and have some very intense conversations about about that history. Well, and, and the story of Weather Underground is really of young people coming to political consciousness in the early to mid 1960s 
um, your mom, Bernadine Dorn, went to the University of Chicago Law School and became active in Chicago community or organizing. Your father was a uh, school teacher. He became involved in SDS. Um, and together, they and a subset of SDS form this activist group, whether underground, in which they determine to fight the war. But what are the things you learned about them and the ways that they came to activism, the ways they made the decision to actually begin to employ violence in that activism? Um, what surprised you about that? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people do know some of the story. Um Weirdly, a lot of people know none of the story. I mean, one of the things that's been interesting for me is a lot of listeners to the podcast have said, you know, I, I never never knew any of these people, never knew who Bernadine Dorn was. Some people didn't know who Fred Hampton was. So a lot of the history that we might think of as pretty kind of um, basic or, or, or pretty ingrained, uh, a lot of people don't know at all. But I think even for people who think they know the history well, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be some surprises in the series because there were surprises for me. I mean, I grew up in this world and I was surprised by a lot of what I learned. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. One thing that surprised me politically, you know, I was working on this, as I said, during the pandemic, during the Trump administration, and I got into it just thinking, well, I'll, it'll, I'll tell a story of resistance. It'll be interesting to, to get into the history of what it looked like when people fought back against, you know, authoritarianism and kind of law and order fascism. And one of the things that happened along the way is that almost every person I talked to, to a person, my mom, uh, my dad, uh, Jamal Joseph, who was a member of the Black Panthers, um, you know, they would tell me the stories of their radicalization and almost every one of them referenced the killing of a black person by police in the late 60s and early 70s. So for my mom, you know, well, first the killing of Martin Luther King Jr. by a vigilante, and then the killing of Fred Hampton by Chicago police, those were really the kind of turning points in her own radicalization. Jamal Joseph and Sekou Odinga, who were members of the Black Liberation Army, they pointed to the killing of this 10-year-old boy, Clifford Glover, in Queens in, in the 1970s. But I was hearing these stories, you know, and literally, I think a couple days after I had a conversation with Jamal Joseph about that killing was when George Floyd was murdered. So for me, it was a big surprise to know how much of that history was was happening then, you know, that, that these people were really radicalized by exactly the same things that are making people, well, waking people up today, I guess. And and so that was a big surprise. Um Personally speaking, I mean, you'll hear a lot of this in the podcast, but I was surprised, you know, how far my parents were willing to go even after I was born. You know, my whole childhood or my whole life, really, the story I was told is that my parents were radicals. They were revolutionaries. They were fighting the government. They were underground. But then once they had me, they started thinking about how to kind of turn themselves in and, and you know, rejoin society. Well, once I started matching up the dates and talking to people and asking questions, the dates didn't exactly match up. And it turned out that their revolutionary activity had continued pretty well into my childhood. And, and so it was interesting for me to grapple with that idea of, you know, that they were still breaking the law, still carrying out an armed insurrection while they were parents. Yeah. And you really get to that in some of the final episodes when yeah. you ask them, how could you do this? How, mm -hmm. how could you how could you risk losing? 
us, your children, happy, you know. And of course, Kathy Boudin um, did leave behind a child when she and David Gilbert went into prison. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a complicated story I'd like to talk about a little later. Yeah. Um, but you asked them that. And what did, what did they tell you? Well, you know, yes, I asked my parents about it. I also asked Kathy, you know, who's we adopted her son, of course, Chesa Boudin, and, and he's my brother. So in a way, it's all this kind of extended family. And so I asked all of them, people I consider my parents or my adopted parents, you know, how it's not that I, you know, I, I, I think I understand a lot of the political choices they made, even when I don't completely agree with them. But yeah, there were these kind of personal choices, these, these risks that people took and these things people were willing to sacrifice. And as a parent myself, it was hard to get my head around, you know, how you could leave your kid with a babysitter and go out to rob a bank or something like that. Um, what did they tell me? Well, you know, it's complicated. I think a lot of them feel remorse. Kathy, uh, before she passed away, talks very openly and and I think eloquently about the confusion that she was feeling, some of the denials she was in and the mistakes that she made. Uh, but, you know, I also think these are people who have had decades to you know, think about whether they wanted to repent and very few of them repent. You know, they are people who are still committed to a cause. They still believe in what they did. And so I think when you really press them on the question of parenting, they say things like, you know, we tried to do our best to protect you, but we were also fighting for a future that we wanted you to live in. And so it was a complicated dynamic that we tried to navigate. Yeah. And, and, you know, for me, who really knows this story through memoirs, books, uh, at least one documentary, and I'll link to all of those in the show notes for our listeners, um, the story is a tragic one in some ways, um, that, you know, what they did didn't actually end the violent attacks on Black people in the United States. They're still going on. But also there are other tragedies sort of embedded in the story. Um, like when the townhouse on 10th Street blows up, and that's it's near where I work. So I've, I've walked mm-hmm. by it daily for a very, very long time. And I, I always think of what happened there when I see the house, because mm-hmm. it stands out on the block. Um, that really shook everybody. I mean, they were on a trajectory to really do a lot of very dangerous bombing. And when, in fact, that townhouse blew up and their comrades were killed and it drove them underground, there was a big reset in the organization. Um, can you can mm-hmm. you talk about what they told you about that? Sure. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of the things you said, Claire, I, I think, yes, there's a lot of tragedy in the story and, and a lot of missed opportunities and a lot of mistakes. These were young people trying to do this kind of very risky and very... Um, dangerous thing. And there were big mistakes made, some of them fatal mistakes for them and their friends, uh, like the townhouse. I will say, and, I, and I'm happy to talk about the townhouse too, but I will say that, you know, it's, I, I've wrestled a lot with that question of, you know, did, was it a failure as an enterprise, the revolutionary movement of right. that time, you know? And of course, you're right. They didn't um, stop police violence against black people. But, you know, that's a lot to ask for of a bunch of, you know, young activists who are who are kind of fighting back against the police. I mean, you could all you could say also that the liberal reformers who tried to stop police violence also failed. In a, in other words, these are deeply entrenched problems, right? And white supremacy mm-hmm. and police violence, I mean, those are things that people have been fighting for a long time and will continue to fight. So, anyway, I think it's complicated the question of success or failure, but um in terms of the townhouse, you know, I, I think I tell this episode, this story in episode four of the podcast, and I call it, you know, the darkest chapter of the story because it really is 
this incredibly sad and 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 terrible thing that happened, you know, and 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 that they made happen, and that is that they were building bombs in a in a townhouse in the East Village, and they blew themselves up, you know, and it's unclear exactly what they were planning to do with those bombs. There's I, I talk about my conjecture in the in the in the podcast, but um, you know, my dad's girlfriend Diana Otten was killed, and his best friend Terry Robbins was killed. And these were kids in their 20s who were, you know, engaged in what they thought was a kind of violent revolution and ended up cutting their own lives tragically short. And, you know, for my dad and therefore for my family, I think it is like a signal event, a, a tragic event that that made my family possible, but also kind of scarred him and, and scarred them permanently. Yeah. And, and you know, just to go back to the question of success or failure, I, I do think from my own perspective, one of the successes was that these dramatic events made people think. Um, mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, I was really a child at the time when all of this was happening, but I used to go into the post office with my mother to buy stamps and mail things and so on. And that's where the FBI wanted posters were. And mm -hmm. so I would see these people up on the wanted posters, you know, Angela Davis and Kathy and yeah. Bernadine and Bill. <laughs> and and it seemed to me, it, it, it not only seemed romantic to me as a child, but it caused me to actually think about the war in a much more connected way than I otherwise would have at that age. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, do, do you think they know that? Yeah, I think I think when they talk about, I mean, they're pretty open about many of their failures. I think when they think about what was successful, it has to do with exactly the kind of thing you're talking about, kind of trying to set an example for white activists of how you could be radically in solidarity with the Black Freedom Movement, radically in solidarity with the, the Panthers as the kind of vanguard organization of the revolution. And, you know, and, and so, yeah, kind of being out there, being willing to fight. I mean, you talk, you call it romantic, and I think in some ways it is, or there, there's a way that people take it as romantic, and certainly their iconography and their kind of radical chic is is part of their legacy, right? But I think on a more substantive level, they were kind of trying to say, we can't overthrow the United States government ourselves. I think they knew that they were not going to single-handedly create a revolution, but I think they were trying to be kind of on the furthermost edge of people being willing to resist and willing to risk things for that movement. And especially, I think what makes people remember them still is that it's rare to have, you know, middle-class white kids willing to risk their futures, risk their lives, risk their families to try to kind of end the war in Vietnam and, and to try to be in solidarity with people fighting white supremacy. Yeah. And let's, let's talk about that solidarity um, yeah. a little bit more. Because far more than other accounts of Weather Underground, Mother Country Radicals really emphasizes the organization's alliance with the Black Panthers and the mm -hmm. Black Liberation Army. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about that, um, but also about um, your parents and their, their friends' continuing efforts in relation to racism in this country? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think for me, it was something I discovered along the way. I didn't set out to tell the story of Weather Underground through the lens of racial solidarity, but I, you know, I couldn't help but notice, and partly it was because of the time we were living through, because of George Floyd, because of Black Lives Matter. I was probably particularly attuned to it, but I also think, it, interestingly, that it's something that past generations of historians and journalists have missed about this story, precisely maybe because they tended to be white historians and journalists, and they were 
seeing the story through a certain lens and and missing what I think is a central part of it. So for example, every communique I read from the Weather Underground, you know, the communiques were these audio tapes or or letters that they would send out to the press after a bombing or after a robbery or after a prison break. And every single one of them mentions, you know, solidarity with the Panthers, solidarity with the Black Liberation Army. I also found, you know, real concrete examples of kind of these organizations working together, like when the Weather Underground broke Timothy Leary out of prison, they smuggled him to Algeria and, and Eldridge Cleaver, who was kind of the leader of the Panthers in exile, was willing to take him in and, and kind of yeah protect him as a kind of gesture of solidarity with the Weathermen, whom he saw as an allied organization. So I was finding all these connections. And of course, like I said, the fact that many of them were literally radicalized by killing of Black people, by the, the death of Fred Hampton, for example. So it, it kind of came up organically as something I realized had been missed in the history. And I think it's utterly central to who they were and what they were trying to do. Um, and as you say, it, that work has continued, you know, the, the work that they tried to do. My mom, after turning herself in, after going to jail, she ended up running for 30 years the Children and Family Justice Center in Chicago, which was an organization that tried to defend mostly black children who were accused of crimes in the juvenile courts in Chicago. Uh, my dad became a school reformer working on the South Side, mostly black schools. Kathy Boudin ended up working uh, you know, to try to fight mass incarceration. Her son, Chesa, is a progressive prosecutor working to fight mass incarceration. So I think these questions of racial solidarity are just totally tied up in who they are and, and the work they've tried to do for, for decades. Yeah, well, and it was one of the things that most impressed me about Kathy when I became familiar with her work in the prison, that she just sort of buckled down and did the work where she was. Exactly. Um, and that's what organizers do. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, so we'll talk about political violence, um, because we're in another period um, in which political violence is very relevant. It mm -hmm. wasn't new when the weather man, uh, when the weather underground decided to bring the Vietnam War home. Mm -hmm. um, and the United States is in this new cycle of political violence. And, you know, most of the attacks and rhetoric are coming from right wing extremists. Mm -hmm. But sometimes they're arising on the left as well. So mm -hmm. what would you hope that today's activists would learn from this podcast? Well, I think if you listen to the whole thing, uh, you know, you, you see the kind of long-term consequences of, of violent actions on the activists themselves, on their children, on the, the kind of people who were caught in the crossfire, people who were um, killed in action sometimes. I mean, the Weather Underground never killed anybody other than their own people who, who died in the townhouse. They were very careful to avoid lethal violence, partly because of the, the townhouse and what it what it taught them and what it represented, but offshoots of the Weather Underground, the, you know, May Nineteenth Movement and and ex Weather Underground members who teamed up with the Black Liberation Army, which was a, itself a radical offshoot of the Black Panthers, did end up you know participating in actions like the Brinks robbery in 1981 that killed um, police officers and a Brinks guard. Um, the Black Liberation Army was involved in shootouts with the police where police were killed. So yeah, we have to reckon with those consequences. And I think if you listen to it, it's hard to come away without thinking that violence is is most often a terrible mistake and, and that activists who go down that path uh, are, are usually making a big mistake. And, you know, I don't want to say always because there are revolutionary moments when, you know, violence has become necessary. There are 
people even in American history, like John Brown, like Harriet Tubman, who like had to arm themselves to fight slavery, to fight racism. But, you know, I think generally speaking, it's not the most effective tactic. And it's and it's just terribly, terribly dangerous, both practically and morally to the people who who get involved in that. Um, I think, you know, you're right to point out that uh, most violence today comes from the extreme right and has for a generation or more, um, you know, violence against abortion providers and violence against LGBTQ people and violence against black people. You know, I think we are, it, it is very worrisome now to look around and, and see something like the, you know, the insurrection on January 6th and say, we have a big portion of the country now radicalized, not in a revolutionary way, not in a grassroots, let's try to make the country better kind of way, but in an authoritarian fascist sort of like let's reinstate the corrupt president who was was uh voted out and let's use violence to do that i think that's a, a very precarious and dangerous place for the country and and last thing i'll say about this but but political violence tends to come in moments of terrible polarization and and conflict in the country so you think about the last time there was kind of this level of of violence on the left was probably the Panthers and the Weather Underground back in the 60s and 70s when the country was deeply, deeply polarized around issues of race and generational change. And, you know, before that, you might have to go all the way back to the Depression and then before that to the Civil War and John Brown and and the kind of activists who were fighting in those times. So I think we are in another dangerous, hyper-partisan, highly divided and potentially violent moment. Yeah, and, and a moment in which the potential violence of the state is very much under the scrutiny of mm-hmm. reformers and being defended on the right. Um, and, you know, one of the things this podcast made me think about was the amount of violence um, that was on television in the 1960s and 70s. The fact that the Vietnam War was really the first war that was fully broadcast. Um, and other people I've talked to, journalists from the period, talk about how much film was left on the cutting room floor. Mm -hmm. Um, That film that was considered too gruesome for people to see at the dinner hour and so on. Nevertheless, what what remained was this sort of constant barrage that people could either become numb to or they could respond to. And the young people in Weather Underground responded to it. And You know, did you get a sense from interviewing them of the kind of urgency that was driving them? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, there is something I don't think I don't think usually cold, hard facts or kind of statistics drive people to revolutionary action and certainly not to violence, but visceral images and stories and kind of actually seeing the bloodshed does drive people kind of crazy. Right. So. Um, so you're right to point to the footage of Vietnam. My dad talks in the podcast about what radicalized him. And he talks about being a school teacher, being a, a teacher of young children, and then watching on TV, you know, his own government napalming Vietnamese villages and thinking about, you know, these kids I'm taking care of all day are just like those kids that my government is is burning to death. And that is a, that's a very visceral idea. And it was literally on TV, as you say, and literally, you know, photographs of of that in the newspapers. So I think that is a huge driver of of radicalization. I think we're seeing the same thing now. This is exactly what the cell phone videos of of people being killed by police did in the last 5 years is you know it's different, you know, you might know that there's a lot of violence against black people in America, but to see it, to see 
somebody being choked to death by police to see somebody being shot in the back, that's a different level of visceral engagement, a different level of empathetic suffering. And, and I think that does drive people to, um, you know, to be more determined to act and to, to fight back against it. And, you know, what I keep remembering is that they were so young. Um. No, they were so young. I mean, my parents were in their 20s, but, you know, Jamal Joseph, who's a big part of the podcast, you know, he was he joined the Black Panthers at 15 uh, when he, when Martin Luther King was killed. And he was, you know, imprisoned at 16 on Rikers Island for his radical activity. So, yeah, these were kids, sometimes quite literally kids who were trying to make a revolution. Well, and Jamal Joseph's story is a very interesting one, because not only is he so young when when he joins, but really, he hasn't done anything wrong when he mm -hmm. is criminalized by the police and sent to Rikers and put on trial. And of course, that really seems so relevant to today, the number of young black men who end up in prison when they really haven't done anything. So so that's it, I mean, it's kind of frustrating that the podcast is full of moments in which you think, OK, I'm a historian. I'm supposed to see change over time. I'm not seeing it. <laughs> it's true. It is. And and one of the things I get into later in, in the podcast and like the later episodes is that kind of question of, OK, generational. You know, you, you look back for me, it's very personal to think about what the legacy is. How do I explain who my parents were to my children and how do I think about what I should be doing, you know, based on what they did. And and on the one hand, I find a lot of what they did inspiring, not just them, you know, the, the, the Panthers, the Black Liberation Army. There's something just incredibly brave about, about people willing to risk everything to try to make change. And then you look and you think like, we still are facing the same problem. So if they if they were willing to do anything to to literally risk their lives to change it and and they weren't able to, what does that mean for us? But, you know, I think I actually ended up feeling weirdly more optimistic after making the show than I did beforehand, just because, you know, there is a sense that that the change is happening. It's happening slowly and it's happening. It's not it's not linear. You know, there there are cycles of of reaction and and people are kind of constantly pushing the boulder up the hill only to see it slide a little bit back further down. But there has been change made and there are kids out there on the streets today you know, demanding that change. And I, I don't think that's going to end. I don't think we, we reach a promised land necessarily, but I think you can't help but hear this and think there are young kids out there today willing to fight, willing to, you know, to, um, to put themselves on the line to, to change the world. Yeah. And, you know, we're doing this recording five days before an election in which mm -hmm. we may see some of those right-wing extremists put into office. Um, we definitely will. We will see it. Yeah. <laughs> the current emphasis on voting and saving democracy where does where does that fit in your thinking about activism since you finished the podcast i think voting is essential but i think it's the bare minimum you know i think um voting absolutely we can't we 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 need to fight for our democracy especially at a moment like this when the people who are running on the other side are literally running to end democracy and to and to to entrench white supremacy even further, to entrench sort of misogyny and and control over women's bodies. All these things, you know, basic questions of human rights and liberation that people have fought for, are being threatened at the ballot box. So it's essential to vote to try to keep those people out of power. But I think you know liberals in America make a mistake when they say you know just vote and then 
in between for two-year cycles or four-year cycles, you can kind of go back to not paying attention. I think it has to be voting right. and organizing, voting and, you know, um, uh, resistance, and sometimes even voting and, you know, breaking the law for what you believe. I mean, I think I'm not, ag I'm not against people thinking like, you know, if it means breaking the law to protect a woman's right to choose, if it means smuggling people over state borders, if it means getting people the resources they need, that might be necessary. So yes, anyway, I think voting for sure, but also resistance throughout the year, not just uh, in November. Yeah. And I, and I think the point you raise, you know, do we break the laws when the laws are unjust or when the laws yeah. are producing injustice is an extraordinarily important one that's very relevant to young activists today. I want to move us toward the last two episodes of the podcast, which address the Brinks robbery in 1981 and its consequences. Mm -hmm. And just for our listeners, the Brinks robbery was an event that resulted in the murder of Brinks guard and two other guards were wounded and subsequently two Nyack policemen were, were murdered. Mm -hmm. um, and whether underground veterans, Kathy Boudin, Judy Clark and David Gilbert were not involved in the killings, but they went to prison for decades as accomplices um, mm -hmm. to these killings. That event leads you to this reflective final chapter about the reverberations of radical politics for others, particularly the children, over mm -hmm. the years. And we've talked about that a little bit, but was that a hard episode to do? It, it was really hard. Those last couple episodes were hard for me. They were hard for Chesa. I think they were hard for Kathy and for my mom. They were hard for Kakuya Shakur, who I interview at length in, in the series. Kakuya is Asada Shakur's daughter. And you know, really, the last couple of episodes of the series are built around three stories. My story, my brother Chase's story and Kakuya Shakur's story. And all three of us um, are people whose, our moms were revolutionaries. They were prominent leaders of the new left. And all three of us lost our mothers for some time uh, because of their activism. You know, in a way I got off the easiest. My mom went to jail for a little over a year when I was a kid and then ended up getting out and kind of, we had a relatively normal life um, going forward. So I, it was difficult, obviously, to lose your mom for a year and a half when you're six years old. But, but compared to Chesa and Kakuya, I got a fizzy. You know, Chesa's parents, David and Kathy, went to prison for decades. He grew up in my family because he had no parents or they, they were not free. Um, and Kakuya Shakur's mom, Asada Shakur, was broken out of prison by members of the black and the white undergrounds and smuggled to Cuba where she got asylum. And she's been underground now for the last 40 years. I mean, she's still underground. And um, so, you know, we talk a lot in the podcast, me, Chesa, Kakuya, about what that was like, about growing up without your mom, about questioning the choices that she made, the priorities that she had, if she was willing to leave you behind for what she believed. So of course it was difficult. And and also really interesting for me, you know, I've I've, I've this is my life story, so I'm it's not so I've I've been thinking about it for a long time, but um, but talking to Chesa and Kakuya put a lot of it in perspective for me. I mean, they've been thinking about it at least as hard as I have, and they had some, I think, pretty brilliant things to say about how they reconcile their feelings about their their parents in their own minds. Yeah, and and Kakuya's story was particularly sad because she has an opportunity to reunite with her mother and it doesn't work out. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I strongly recommend people listen. To, I think it's episode nine of the series because Kakuya does a better job than I could do of telling the story. But basically, uh, Kakuya was five years old when her mom was broken out of prison, which is the same age I was when my mom went to prison. So we talked a lot about you know that kind of being five and 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 losing your mom and what that feels like. Kakuya thought for a long time that her mom had been killed. She didn't. They were not in touch. Her mom had disappeared. And there was no way of knowing if she was alive. And then I think when she was about 11, she heard that her mom had turned up in Cuba and she was okay. And they flew Kakuya to Cuba to be with her mom. And so she showed up, you know, as an 11 year old kid and kind of met her mom again for the first time and lived with her in Cuba for a couple of years. And as you say, it didn't quite work. I mean, uh, they didn't know each other that well. Kakuya was understandably angry. At, at what at the abandonment and um, and so they had a lot of friction uh, and you know Kaguya eventually came back to the states and she now has her own family and her own career and her own life and one of to me one of the most heartbreaking moments in the series is when I asked her uh, you know about her kids meeting Asada and she said they never they've never met um, she she hasn't seen her mom in twenty years and so her mom can't meet her grandkids and so yeah that that the kind of reverberations the consequences are ongoing for people and particularly for black people, you know, the white activists, I mean, people really suffered. Kathy and David, Kathy did 21 years, David did 40 years in prison. So that's not nothing. But it's also true that for the most part, white activists have now been able to get their lives back. And there's some black activists who never have and, and never will. And a lot of black activists who were killed. Um, who were yeah. killed, absolutely, and imprisoned forever. And yeah. some of them are still in prison. Yeah. And, you know, Matulu Shakur is still in prison and and is very ill and might die in prison. So, And and I think it's important to say a couple things. One is that uh, Bernadine Dorn went to jail because she refused to cooperate with a grand jury, not because she'd been convicted of a crime. Um, and was eventually let out because the judge said, you know, you're just using this to punish her. I think, you know, the other thing that is probably worth pointing out is that the parents also lost something. And despite the fact that they were the ones that made the decision to do it, they also lost their children. And, and that must have been terribly painful for them. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, much of my life has been, I mean, we... We visited Kathy in prison almost every weekend for most of my childhood. Kath Chesa had visited his mom and then his dad in prison several times a week for most of his life. And painful for them, absolutely painful for him, of course, um, deeply traumatic. And and kind of um, they all had to learn how to live with that. How to, he had to learn how to forgive them. They had to learn how to forgive themselves. And, you know, they eventually did that and had really great relationships. And, and David, who's just gotten out of prison a year ago, um, is still figuring out, I think, how to rejoin our family, you know, how to be a father to Chesa and a grandfather to Chesa's son. And yeah, it, it's been, as I said, the consequences have been severe for a lot of people. So I, I want to turn to our closing segment here, mm -hmm. um, which addresses what our listeners need to know and why they need to listen to this podcast now. Um, mm -hmm. You obviously put it out now for a reason, mm -hmm. but, but why do listeners need to pay attention to mother country radicals now? I think there's a couple reasons. I mean, I think the first thing is that if you are interested in what resistance looks like, really fierce resistance to 
racism, fierce resistance to imperialism and war and authoritarian government at home. This is an example of people who really tried, young people who put themselves on the line to change the country, change the world, and to resist the kind of fascism we're seeing today. So again, you know, I talk a lot in the, in the story about the mistakes they made along the way, but I do feel inspired by it. You know, I, when I think about how helpless we sometimes feel, you know, what can we do? And the country seems to be going off the rails. And these are people who really were willing to act, not just my parents, but people like Fred Hampton, people like uh, Jamal Joseph and Asada Shakur, people who were willing to risk everything to kind of fight back against that. So I think people will find that story really interesting. I also think that the story of white and black radicals working together is a story that we are trying, we're still trying to figure out that kind of solidarity is complicated. It's not easy. And, you know, we talk about allyship nowadays. Everybody I talked to for the podcast, black and white, said, you know, we were not allies, we were comrades. We were working together. We were shoulder to shoulder. The solidarity between these groups, between these people was real. They were risking their lives for each other and trying to support each other. And so I think the kind of easy conversations we have now about allyship, if you're really interested in what that looks like, I think this this series will, will show you people who, for all its complexities, for all its unfairness and injustice, who really tried to be on the same side. And, and that's a fascinating story for today. And you can do it without picking up a gun or making a bomb. Um, <laughs> that's it, true too. It's, all, it's all in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, Zaid Erzdorn, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about Mother Country Radicals. Thanks, Claire. It's a great conversation. I appreciate it. And that's it for today's show. You can go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes and to listen to more episodes, leave a comment, or ask a question. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, which gets you one newsletter a week that may or may not include a podcast. Or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. You can also participate in subscriber chats. You can subscribe to Why Now on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Please share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. Show notes, technical assistance, and research are by Emma Kern. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. You can find both of these terrific artists on soundstripe.com. That's all for now. I'll see you next time.